Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that samples as much as it can of the experiences of cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories, including vehicle sales start the year on a positive note. Mitsubishi installs Australia's first vehicle-to-grid bi-directional chargers. Hyundai releases its new streamliner, Ionic 6, and Ford goes back to Formula One. And in our features, using motor racing to market your product, while well, Mercedes has big packages for customers to go to the 12-hour race at Bathurst, which was on last weekend. They get special opportunities, and we talk to Mercedes about what they offer. And the Overdrive panel get together to road test the Subaru Forester. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Now to start the program, which was originally broadcast on the 11th of February 2023, let's start with the news. Australia's vehicle sales started on a positive note in 2023 with January deliveries of nearly 85,000 vehicles, an 11.9% increase on the same period in 2022, according to figures from the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries. Battery electric vehicles represented 5.7% of the total sales. A year ago, battery EV sales in January were less than 1%. January is a relatively slow month for deliveries and may not necessarily define the upcoming trends, but nonetheless there are some interesting shifts in certain categories. Tesla accounted for two-thirds of all EV sales with its Model 3, which is classified as a medium-sized sedan. Sedans in general and the medium-sized category in particular have been on a long downward trend. Last year in January, before Tesla was reporting their figures, the biggest selling medium sedan was the Toyota Camry, which is in the subcategory of vehicles generally priced below $60,000. They accounted for 42% of all medium-sized cars. In January this year, they were just 8%. This year, Tesla dominated by delivering nearly 3,000 Model 3s to capture 59% of all medium car deliveries. In fact, their Model 3 was the third best-selling vehicle overall behind two utes, the Ford Ranger and the Toyota Hilux, but ahead of every other SUV or passenger car. Mitsubishi has claimed an Australian first after switching on bi-directional EV charging facilities at its head office in Adelaide that will allow the flow of electricity both to the vehicle from the grid and from the vehicle back to the grid. Using V2G, all of these batteries on wheels have the potential to assist the grid stabilising during supply and demand fluctuations, as well as with energy loading, shifting and price arbitrage, functions that promise to benefit both the grid and the consumer. Some vehicles, such as the Hyundai Ioniq 5 and the Kia EV6, have vehicle-to-load, which allows you to connect devices through a standard 240-volt plug, which is good for, say, boiling a kettle or running a fridge when power is not available. Vehicle-to-grid is in its infancy in Australia. The Nissan Leaf, for example, has the components to play its part in this and has done so in some other countries, and there have been some trials proposed in Australia. But V2G has so far only been approved for installation and operation in South Australia, So while Mitsubishi certainly isn't the first or only car maker to dabble in this technology, the commissioning of V2G capabilities at its Adelaide office 
counts as a milestone. Hyundai is about to launch its all-electric Ionic 6 Streamliner midsize sedan onto the Australian market. Its streamlined design has a low front bonnet and a similar curving design down to the bumper bar at the rear. From the side, it has the style of an arch bridge. The aerodynamic design is one of the reasons that the Ionic 6 has up to a 614km range for the two-wheel drive version and 519km for the four-wheel drive model. It can charge from 10 to 18% in as little as 18 minutes. The Ionic 6 also introduces over-the-air system updates, including map information, and features enhanced SmartSense safety technology and EV BlueLink connected services. The all-electric Ionic 6 is the second model in the Hyundai Ionic range, alongside the much-lauded Ionic 5 medium SUV. Prices for the Ionic 6 before on-road costs range from $74,000 to $88,000. American automobile manufacturer Ford have returned to the Formula One. They are joining forces with Red Bull powertrains to develop the next-gen hybrid power unit that will supply the engines to both Oracle Red Bull Racing and Scuderia AlphaTauri teams. This will begin in 2026 and continue on until at least 2030. Ford first entered the Formula One in 1967, partnering with Cosworth Racing. They introduced the DFV engine to the sport, which went on to become the single most successful Formula One race engine of all time. Most notably, this Ford engine was raced by F1 champion Jackie Stewart, who won three drivers' championships with Ford between 1969 and 1973. The DFV engine was retired in the late 80s, but Ford continued to race with turbo and naturally aspirated engines, which ultimately powered Michael Schumacher to his first F1 World Championship in 1994. In 2001, Ford bought the Stewart Grand Prix team. They changed the name of the team to Jaguar, a company in which they own, and raced under this name until 2005, although they had very little success during this time. Ford now wants to return to Formula One as the FIA's sustainability changes are reflective of their development as a company. Ford's development is now focused on electric, software-defined modern vehicles and experiences. They believe joining the F1 will be a cost-effective platform to innovate, share ideas and technologies, and engage with tens of millions of new customers. Ford will be competing to win and are committed to making the F1 a more sustainable sport. And that has been the news. Now, Jerry Stamalos is the head of media relations and brand engagement with Mercedes-Benz here in Australia. I've uh, caught up with him at the 12-hour Bathurst race. It's about 11 o'clock in the morning, and he'll give us an idea of not only what's happening there, but what they do for uh, prestige or for customers that they're trying to encourage to get to go to the event. Get to go to the event. Jerry joins us on the line now. Good day, Jerry. Good morning, David. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How's it going up there? The weather is absolutely perfect. The Mercedes AMG GT3s are doing extremely well at this stage. So hopefully, with, with six and a half hours to go, hopefully we keep it that way. But it's so far so good. So this is an event for what what you might call the spectacular cars, really, isn't it? How would you describe it? 
Look, we've referred to them as our race cars. We're, we're very fortunate. We've got some amazing road cars, but the race cars that built and developed in a Falterbach, to see them going around here and the, the magnificent noise that's coming out the back of them, uh, it's putting a smile on everyone's face. But it's a race car in a sense. I can buy one that goes on the road, but it's been modified you know, with safety features and perhaps uh, more racing rubber on the, on the tyres. It is still something I can, the same model shape I can buy on the road. Well, you can, well, I should say you could buy the AMG GT for, as a road car, but the race cars that we see here are specifically built for racing. The GT went out of production, well, it was last year now, but the actual ones that we're seeing running around today are specifically built for racing. Okay, so it's creating an image of Mercedes, and I mean, you have a very strong presence in Formula One, for example, but it's a creating an image of uh, that car racing is meant to do for a brand, even a prestige brand, that uh, you can do the engineering do it and do it well. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's the birth that's the birth of the brand of AMG. That's where it comes from. In the late sixties, a couple of ex Mercedes mechanics got together and created the brand, which is the foundation of what we see today. And motorsport can run across all types of segments of the car industry, but most luxury car buyers not only like to have nice interior, but they also like something with a bit of performance. Some certain racing in Australia can be uh, more down market in a way for the sort of brands that are there. You'd, there's some pretty exotic stuff around there, isn't there? Lamborghinis and BMWs and Audis and so on. It, it is the upper end of image. Yeah, without a doubt. But it's it's also the lure of this amazing racetrack. It's, <laughs> there's so many things that happen in Australia that uh, us Australians are uh, biased towards because it's in our backyard. But Everyone who comes from overseas, and obviously I talk to a lot of people from Germany, they come here and they see the track and some of them get to actually experience the track and they're absolutely blown away. They call it a mini Nürburgring. That's lovely, isn't it? Of course, this event in particular does give emphasis to overseas teams rather than perhaps many of the other events here in Australia. There's an overseas reputation and value that comes out of competing in this particular event, the 12-hour? Every driver I've ever spoken to is on their bucket list. One of our ambassadors, Mick Doohan, who's been with the AMG brand since 1993, he's here today. Most people associate him with, obviously, what he's done on two wheels, but he's obviously got a strong link with Formula One, but... As soon as we mentioned to him that we'll be at the 12 hour, he said, count me in. So in order to enhance that with local people, you run some packages that a customer can go up to Bathurst and enjoy it for its full value. What's that involved? Well, part of the aim of the ownership, it gives you access to a number of events throughout the year, but certainly for our customers who motorsport enthusiasts uh, we have the Bathurst 12 hour we I wish we could host more of them but uh, we host 200 customers up at the Ridges Hotel and if you've never been to the Ridges Hotel the top level is an, is an open there's part of it is open air but there's also like a function area which overlooks the entire track and uh, we think it's the best best view in, of Mount Panorama 
Uh, we host 200 of those customers and it's just a great atmosphere. Yesterday we had qualifying and Mauro Engel put the car on pole, put the lap record and just to be amongst like-minded people following the same brand, the, the atmosphere just couldn't be matched. It was, it was just awesome. So we look after those customers uh, over the weekend. Uh, they have the opportunity to get a hot lap with our driving instructors and we're lucky enough to get a lot of the race drivers come up and speak to us not only on the Saturday but during the race so they straight out of the race car come upstairs and have a chat to us so we think it's the best seat in the house without a doubt. That's the hotel down on Murray's Corner is it down at the end of Conrad Strait after it's been through the chase is that the one? Exactly so it's it's certainly an entertaining part of the track when people get, when some of the drivers get a little bit too enthusiastic and uh, push the brake pedal a little bit too hard. <laughs> I found and commentated from there on various Bathurst events that watching motor racing is now, with modern technology and screens and information, great to watch on the screen, but also to have that reality in front of you as well, but to have both. And I think having both must be a way that do, do customers come away with a, a greater appreciation of just what's involved in A, getting a, a car to the track and then B, competing, particularly over 12 hours? Yeah, well, we, we run a lot of driving events and with those driving events, our customers over the years are getting faster and driving better and we're seeing a lot of them buying race cars and now competing in the 12 hour. So that's not an uncommon uh, situation. Some of the classifications are both pro drivers and amateur and pro-am, I presume. Exactly, exactly. So also known as gentleman drivers. That's the beauty of the GT3 program. It's literally turnkey. You obviously need a race team behind it, but the car comes as a turnkey, ready to race. You get support from the factory. So most of the team's... Actually, all of the AMGs that are running here, uh, there's factory engineers who are either dialed in or actually here on track, supporting them with information and sharing information across the AMG team. So the benefit of some of the front-running AMGs will be passed down to all teams so that everyone can utilise that data to help our brand be closer to the front because you just never know what's going to happen over 12 hours. Well, you're bringing uh, attention not only to your cars and to the race, but also to Australia as well. And I think that's a lovely opportunity the 12-hour race provides. And we've seen quite a number of car companies try and compete in the event. And in that regard, it has a variety of brands and, as you say, international drivers who highlight just what a great place it, it is to come and have a race. Jerry, lovely to talk to you. I thank you very much for your time. And I'll leave you to get back to watching the race. And that's Jerry Stimulus, Head of Media Relations and Brand Engagements for Mercedes-Benz here in Australia. And we caught up with him about, what was it, five hours, five and a half hours into the 12-hour race being held at Bathurst. And the full... <coughs> And the full interview with Jerry is available on our website, drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, better way to test the latest Subaru Forester 
then to get someone who drives an older version and compare it with the new. On the line is our artist in resident, Dean Oliver. Good day, Dean. David, hello. It's uh, good to be with you. Define your old Subaru Forester. <laughs> it's a bit of an old family heirloom now. It's a, it's a 2006 model Forester. It was, like many of them, a fleet car. It's done a few thousand kilometres, well looked after, and it's been a it's been a good and faithful servant for 12 years or so now, more than that. It's a Forester. It follows legions of uh, and generations of happy owners. Not exciting, but very reliable if they're, if they're, well, if they're serviced. They're, very, they're reliable old buses. They just keep going. They do nothing terribly badly and do lots of things with really quite easy confidence. Easy to drive, easy to look after. I'm going to be subjective here because I, I, I had thought of upgrading to a more recent model. So it was, a, it was a really enjoyable thing to sit in the new special edition, I believe, uh, Forester mm. 2.5. That's the point about Subarus is that they have a great loyalty because they are solid and dependable. The outside look, yours looks more like a station wagon, whereas the new one, as it is classified, looks more like an SUV. That's a fair comment, David. Yes, although like all cars now, the uh, the current Forester has grown in size with uh, each uh, update. They, they get larger. They get They get bigger. My 2006-2007 model, whilst it, yeah, it looks more like a station wagon, but it's a small station wagon compared to what is now a, a large SUV, even though I think it's probably, as far as to, technically, is a mid-range SUV, is it not? Yeah. Sitting in it very comfortably, I might add. It feels larger than the old one. It sits a little higher, which certainly helps. Visibility is terrific in the new one. You see all round, and, and I think for... For the textbook archetypal Subaru owner, the Forester owner, it's going to do a great job at the supermarket car park and the school drop-off. <laughs> Once you sat inside, were you overwhelmed with the technology? Among other things, you've actually got an infotainment screen, which, of course, your old model doesn't. It's quite dazzling to sit in the new one compared to the old one. There's so much going on. There's sort of a combination of analog and digital instruments. There's, of course, a, there's the old one, a, a spectacular eight-inch video screen. Great connectivity these days with phones and uh, and the like. The audio system is is terrific. I didn't quite work out exactly what it was, but there's a little diagram, a little picture of the of the actual Forester itself in the middle of the dashboard with all sorts of other information. I think uh, fuel economy and uh, uh, all sorts of things um, that we probably really don't need, but you know, I do know what it looks like after <laughs> all. But uh, <laughs> it's certainly interesting to look at. There's a lots going on there and lots to read about in, in the enormous operation manual. Dean, you mentioned that it had visibility very well, and I think you would say at the front and to the side, although perhaps not quite, and this is a common problem with SUVs, over your back corner if you were looking for your blind spot. Yes, David, it's interesting that most new SUV styling these days seems to have quite a kick up the C-pillar of the car, whereas my old Subaru is very much, as you said, a station wagon with a quite a flat waistline, which aids in great visibility. So you know, the old one, you almost don't need a reversing camera and uh, just a good look over the shoulder tells you what's maybe in your blind spot. But blind spot visibility in, in new SUVs with that sort of styling, oh, it's, it is a bit of a concern. And I think it really emphasises the need 
to make sure your rear vision mirrors are correctly adjusted. So you, you really can see that blind spot because a quick glance over your rear shoulder, your left shoulder, you may not see something that's in that blind spot. Yeah. It's not helped by that. And modern technology is, of course, giving us better warnings for those blind spot points. Now, the power, not a turbocharged engine. Some have criticised it for that. The rev heads, from your point of view, was it enough? Well, David, I'd read a lot of the comments, the online comments, and all of the redheads, of course, bemoan that there's no turbocharge. I was prepared to be disappointed, but look, I was present, pleasantly surprised. The 2.5 uh, motor really buzzes along with admirable acceleration and um, quite competent for all situations, I'm sure. Hmm. The 2.5 motor still sounds like the boxer motor. It still has got that sort of sewing machine buzz to it. <laughs> Old Subaru fans probably look with uh, 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 fondness for, for that sound. Uh, CVT gearbox. Yeah, the CVT, I've read the criticisms and um, I, I've experienced some older CVTs and, and agreed with the criticisms, but the Subaru, uh, once again, I, I was pleasantly surprised. I think Subaru have done a a great job. They've worked really well to improve their, their CVT and there was no noticeable sort of confusion as to you know what gear it had selected. The engine revs seemed to actually match what the car was doing and uh, once again, pleasantly surprised. Yeah. All right, mate. Thanks for your time. Thanks, David. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, we've spoken to our aesthetic appraiser, our artist in residence, Dean Oliver, about the Forrester Special Edition. Now, let's talk a little bit more of the rev heads from the group. On the line, we have uh, Evan Jones and Fred Brain. Now, Evan, you were an official at the Bathurst 12 hour. Were there a lot of people there? Yes. They officially said it was a, a record crowd, over 54,000. Now, Bath is a big place, and it can hide 54,000 people pretty well. But it, you did notice it was a good crowd, yes. The first one since, really, the impact of COVID. Yeah, there was one last year, but it was pretty small. So, yes, th this one it was a, a return to a good crowd since COVID, correct. Good racing? Yes. For the most part, good clean racing. They set a number of records, one of them being the longest green flag session in the history of the event, which was four and three-quarter hours, which is pretty good going. Without a safety car. And that was towards the end of the race. So the fact that the, the finish was so close, despite not having any safety cars, is a big kick, I think, for the category. Well, we hope so, because uh, I love that style of racing. Fred, you've raced at Bathurst in your Monaro and in, in your Datsun, but let's put that aside. The Forester, Fred... When you sat in it, were you comfortable? Yeah, look, it was a, a very easy car to just get in and drive away. Again, being a sort of typical Japanese car, all the controls were where you expected them to be. No surprises. Drove nicely, steered, brake, drove nicely. Uh, my recollections of driving it, it wasn't a particularly punchy engine, but I, it's it's not a turbo. No. So it was adequate, adequate. rather than necessarily sporty. Yes, but, it, I mean, it drove nice. It's got a CVT transmission, so it's not as if you're experiencing gear changes when you accelerate, for example. But it was was rather noisy, hmm. was one, one thing I noticed. You noise from the engine, Dean, described it sounding like a Singer sewing machine a bit, but 
I think it was just generally noisy, sometimes pushing more towards screaming and rather roaring in a way if you opened it out. Yeah, although just in normal driving, it, it had sort of more noise, like just road noise, you might say, combination of engine, tyre noise seemed to be more prominent than in some other vehicles. Evan, CVT, Fred Ray's continually variable transmission it tends to remove any direct link between the speed of the engine and the speed of the car. It can vary all over the place. How did you find this model? I agree that uh, this particular car could have had some more um, inch sound insulation between the cabin and the engine. Hmm. The engine and gearbox does the job, but the noise is intrusive given uh, what the type of vehicle is. It, it's a reasonably luxurious vehicle for what it does. But it's far too noisy. It's harsh, yeah. How did you find it handled, Evan? You uh, like to really assess a car, not just as at race speed, I'm not suggesting that, but for fit for purpose in its handling? Oh, in that respect, yes. Yeah, yes. I think with a flat four engine, therefore a lower centre of gravity. But, uh, yeah, it, it's a nice car to drive. If you put the sound aside, more than fit for purpose. Uh, it's comfortable. You can go long distances. I would make my point that my stepson has a lo- an earlier version and he drives up from Griffith from time to time and or his wife and um, they have no problems with the car as far as um, handling or comfort goes. Mm. And this one, being a later model, goes a step further. They've just got to sort out the sound. Subaru has some very loyal followers and it sounds like your stepson is an example of that. Well, this is his first Subaru, but he's very happy with it, yes. Mm. He's very happy with it. He, he just put in for service while he, I put in for him while he was away. And he had no issues at all. Got service. They found no issues at all. And he loves it. Mm. He basically loves it because it does everything it needs to do. Fred, when we were rallying cars, that Datsuns particularly, we often had high up on the dashboard in the centre a couple of dials. This uh, had a screen up there. Did you ever manage to really assess what it was doing and was it useful information? No, I must say I didn't really get to look at that. That's the screen that's above the computer screen. The infotainment screen, yes. Okay, no, not not really. I I must say I, I didn't really get to look at it and sort of work out what it does, what it doesn't do. I find that I need reading glasses. I can do quite comfortably drive a car looking ahead without the need for glasses. But I found the information there. I can't even remember what was in it, nor could Dean remember what was in it. So I think it's it's cute, but without necessarily being effective. You, Fred, would have said the traditional aspect of it in front of the driver and the smallish screen in the centre, nine inch, I think, is traditional without being excessive yeah looking uh, i'm just looking at another uh, picture of the vehicle now that uh, i've googled and um yeah sitting inside it was quite a pleasant pleasant look the whole dashboard in actual fact it's not as if there was a big imposing computer screen had the the main dials which were quite visible in front of you a nice steering wheel so yeah the whole interior of the dashboard was quite a uh, pleasant one to sit behind. We talked about the Suzuki S-Cross last week. I had a bit of a chat about that. Evan, in the comparison to this, again, the Suzuki is a pretty good, solid car, but it had an eight-speed automatic gearbox. Did that make its performance to you a little better? Well, I'm glad you told me it was eight-speed. I wasn't sure. 
Look, it was a fun car to drive. It needs more power. It handles well. It's not as noisy, actually, as the Subaru. It's easier to park. You've got better visibility out of it. I rather liked it. It just needs more grunt. Otherwise, it's a really nice car. We will talk about in a week or two's time that we also had, not a direct comparison, but almost like a sorbet, something to cleanse your palate in between. We had an Ionic 5, all-electric all Hyundai. Is that representing, compared to these two solid traditional cars, is the new generation a major step? Fred, did you feel that? Fairly significant step, to be honest. It was an interesting car to drive, the Ionic, which um, had a few of what I would call wacky features on it, but it drove very normally. Fred, thanks very much. That's good. No problem. And uh, Evan, to you two as well. Glad that you're back safe from Bathurst. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Jerry Stamelis, Fred Brain, Dean Oliver, Evan Jones and Mark Wesley for their help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.